Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 74 with Alex Smith. I think what I've learned about myself over the years is that I do enjoy the push, you know, to get a, a place open, writing the recipes, recipe testing, getting them ready, training the staff from nothing, design aspects of the kitchen, figuring it out how it's going to flow, and then opening and dealing with the clusterfuck that comes with an opening, right? Uh, everything, you know, breaks down, half the staff calls it sick. I think that's the, that's something I've learned over the years is what really drives me or has driven me in the past. And then gradually bringing the restaurant to, you know, success and then being able to train someone up and, and put them in charge and to continue the success. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On this show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, R&D chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 10 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in 1992, surprisingly, I have literally never worked in a restaurant. On this week's episode, I have Chef Alex Smith. Alex has been in the food and beverage industry for over 20 years now, but he only started cooking the last 10 years. In that time, he's been a line cook, kitchen manager, head chef, and pitmaster. He's worked at Fairmont Resorts, Five Diamond Restaurants, franchises, recreational cooking schools, and privately owned restaurants. He's opened seven restaurants, three as head chef. The past few years, Alex has been focused on barbecue, working at Mighty Quinn's, Hometown Barbecue, and even going to Paris to help open Melt Barbecue. So you're going to hear about his career path, what it's like being a consultant, and what he's learned from opening a number of restaurants. I also got to talk to him about what he's working on now and what's next. And if you want to make sure you catch every episode of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast, go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to sign up for our mailing list. The link can also be found in the show notes. As always, thanks so much for listening, and have a great week. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hey, bud. Good to see you. Good to see thanks you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. How's things going? Things are going great, man. Uh, you know. All things considered? Um, all things considered, yeah. I mean, I can't complain. We have our health. We, uh, we uh, live in New Jersey now, so uh, we're closer to family than we were for the last two years in Miami. So, yeah, I mean, we can't complain other than the fact that we can't see our family. I know. How far, uh, is, how far is your family from you right now? Well, uh, my wife's family is upstairs. Um, <laughs> That's really close. We live, we live in a separate uh, apartment building for, well, in the same building, but a separate apartment uh, from her parents here in Lavalette, New Jersey. And uh, my family is in Montreal, mostly Montreal and Ottawa. Uh, I love Montreal. We were there last summer. One of my very favorite places to go. Yes. Yeah, I miss it very much. It's a great food town. Um, and uh, it's not far, you know, from here. You just got to make time to get there. It's about five and a half hour drive. Yeah, I've been twice and we drove both times when I was living in the Philly area. We drove and now even being down in Maryland. And it's beautiful because you go up through the upstate New York and go through the Adirondacks and, you know, we got like an Airbnb somewhere and spent the night and the kids loved it. So, uh, yeah, I, I miss traveling so much. That's one of the things I can't wait to get back to doing. Oh man. You're telling me I was, you know, my wife and I are frequent travelers and, uh, when I'm not obviously, you know, um, locked down with a restaurant gig, but, uh, you know, looking through Google photos recently, you know, and, and seeing how, man, how, how much we really, did travel over the last, you know, 10 years since we've been together uh, and how much we miss it. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, as much as I miss dining out at restaurants and seeing friends and being able to sit in, in a restaurant and enjoy the experience, 
the traveling aspect and the inspiration you get from it as a chef um, is something that you take for granted, you know, in, in regular times. I certainly won't be doing that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of hoping some aspects of like virtual things can continue. I was thinking, you know, right now it would be the perfect opportunity, right? Like gas is cheap. My kids are doing school from the computer. My wife's doing work 90% of the time virtually. I can do right. so much. It's like, why can't we just throw our computers and like drive down to Tennessee or something? But But then you get down there and like, everything's closed. You can't go where you want to go. But I, I would love that kind of flexibility in the future where my kids could maybe do a little, you know, take them out of school for a couple of days. They could do it wherever. And my wife could work from the road. I mean, I think that'd be awesome. I mean, that's an ideal scenario, right? My wife's been working remotely um, since we were in Paris, basically, uh, which was about three years ago. And, you know, when she moved to the remote uh, capacity with her, with her work, you know, it opened up all these doors for us. And when I'm in between jobs, we can just go anywhere really. And, you know, she can work on a, on a patio while, uh, while we're exploring, you know, awesome city or country, you know? That sounds really awesome to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I've been fortunate enough to, you know, have time in between jobs. I think that's kind of part of the chef life. If you don't get, you know, locked into a long-term position, you're able to have these uh, stretches of time where where you have, you know, you're able to travel and yeah. eat and explore and learn, you know, which I think is something that's super important in a chef's, you know, career. Let's take it back to the beginning a little bit. How did you get in the restaurant industry? You've got over twenty plus years now. How did you get started? Did you always have an interest in food? Did you go to culinary school? What was your path like? Yeah, so I got into it primarily as as an as a need to make as a need to make money back in the day as as a waiter uh almost 20 years ago because the money was good and you know all my friends were in university and I was living with them and you know I found that the best way for me to have a steady-ish decent income was to be there was to work in the restaurant industry as a waiter so you leave you know you work you get paid basically nothing an hour but you get leave with cash over the end of the day and for any 20 year old that's a great deal especially with 20 year old living with college students so I got into it that way but the more I kind of worked in it at several different jobs over the years I kind of grew to love it more and more and I and I I found that I had kind of a, a natural um, attraction to it so I worked at many different and you know you said in, at the beginning of the show in many different facets of the industry, you know, worked at resorts and private restaurants, pubs, clubs, you name it. And when I started to work at this restaurant in Nova Scotia, when I was living out west or sorry, out east in Canada, it was the first restaurant that I worked at that kind of did quote unquote finer dining. Um, and when I saw what went into it and I saw that it was something that was, you know, I guess you could say achievable in many ways. Like I saw it being put, the dishes being put together by the brigade and I saw the camaraderie, you know, between the kitchen staff and this is, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. So there was still this kind of, and there still is in many restaurants, but this, this kind of, you know, disconnect between the back and the front of the house. And this is also one of the first restaurants where there is more of a connection between the back and the front of the house for whatever reason, I think they just, we just got along better. It was a more intimate setting. There weren't many seats in the restaurant. And as front of house, there was more expected of us in terms of learning the dishes, tasting the dishes and really, you know, expanding our palates. So that was kind of my first dip into the finer dining aspect and realizing, you know, maybe uh, this is what I want to do. But I knew that if I ever wanted to to open my own restaurant, I would have to learn everything there's to learn about cooking as well. So that's kind of what pushed me into the back of house. I just, I just knew, I think I knew almost everything I needed to, almost everything I needed to know about the front house, having worked in all, on all positions throughout the course of about 10 years. And of course, over the years, I, I kind of grew more interested in how food was prepared and how it was made. And, and um, and I guess my palate grew too. So 
at that point, were you thinking about having a restaurant? Like, was there even that little spark that, that you said like, Hey, I think I'd maybe like to have my own spot someday. Yes. I think that's what drove me to, to eventually work in the back of the house is, is the fact that I definitely wanted to be in this industry and I definitely wanted to have my own place one day. And I knew that I had to do it. I'd had to, I'd have to learn everything there is to know about cooking if I wanted to be successful at it, because it's a very difficult industry, as you know, and you can't just go in knowing 50% of it. So that's what I did. And then when I, when I started cooking, that's, that's when I knew that I, if I was going to open a restaurant, I would be opening it from the back of the house. You know, I, I knew I wanted to cook. I knew I preferred to be in the back than in the front after having, you know, cooked for so long. So, so was that your first uh, gig cooking? So my first gig cooking, um, I would say my first real cooking job was when I moved to Manhattan in 2012. I worked at two jobs at the same time. It was kind of my first uh, intro to cooking. So I was I was staging at the James Beard House when I first came here because I couldn't really work because I didn't have uh, residency because I wasn't. I was Canadian, right? So I couldn't work legally. So what I did was, is I, I just staged all the time at the James Beard Foundation and the James Beard House in Manhattan. And while simultaneously doing that, I was actually attending a professional cooking program at ICE, the Institute of Culinary Education. So I had some training back in Montreal, but I was not in a place to uh, graduate Let's say uh, I took it more as a uh, as a fun kind of s- side job. When I decided that I wanted to do it seriously, I knew that even though I had a little bit of experience cooking in and around the city, I I didn't have the, f- the foundations that I needed or that I thought I needed to become really successful. So I I used the Institute of Culinary Education as a as a stepping stone for my uh, to learn all of. The things that I skipped, or I might have skipped working out at restaurants. So coming here, I was staging at the James Beard Foundation and then doing school. And then fin- when I finished school, I was able to, because I married my wife um, and was a, was a resident, I was able to work legally. So I took on my first two jobs, which were working as a line cook at ABC, Cocina, when it was just opening in Manhattan and then uh, at the same time as a meat cutter at Mighty Quinn's Barbecue. So that those were my first two stints of real New York cooking, real American cooking. I guess if you have to learn how to cook being in New York City, there's, you know, it's probably the best place in the world, definitely in the country to learn how to cook, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that uh, it's a, it's a big change. It's a big city, you know, and a lot of people, would say, you know, you have to go to this restaurant, that restaurant, you know, just get your, get your ass kicked and stuff. And that's not, I was never, you know, I was someone who started cooking professionally way late in life. Um, in my opinion, you know, I'm, I was 30, I'm 41 now. So this is about eight or nine years ago. I saw so I was starting like cooking in Manhattan, like eight or nine years ago. And that's late in life to, to get a professional career going. And it's, as you know, like, you know, I'm 44 and I graduated from culinary school in 98. Like when you say I was running it through my head and you say 2012, I'm like 2012, that was like eight years ago, you know, for the amount of experience you have and the things you've done, I didn't realize you'd only been cooking that short a period of time. Yeah. Yeah. And I professionally for sure. Um, And, but I think that's all that really matters, especially when you're, you know, working in this industry. So yeah, I mean, I got into it a little late, but when I got into it, I got into it hard. I have I had a ton of management management experience behind my behind me, so um, it was easier for me to excel in certain positions as a cook. To uh, also, I I had cooked a little bit previously, so I wasn't going into it completely green. But definitely learned quickly. spent spent a little bit more time at at ABC, and then I and then I went full time into barbecue because that's that's where I kind of got bit. So you went all in on barbecue. All in. I had my first bite at Smorgasburg 
2012. I remember it. And, you know, it was at Mighty Quinn's. And this is when Smorg was eight vendors. You know, nobody was there. And I could just have a bite of brisket. And if it was great, I'd go right back in line for another sandwich. Once a week. And I did this several times. And then I kind of developed a relationship with uh, Hugh, the owner of Mighty Quinn's. And just because I had gone there every weekend to eat the brisket. And it, for me, this was something that was so new and so different. I'm, I'm French Canadian. Um, so rich food is everything to me. You know, I, I grew up on it, you know, cheese, butter, fat, beef. That's, that's my jam. So barbecue is, is definitely the type of food that it is, is in my blood. So you know, and that's water. Just thinking about it, it's, <laughs> yeah, me it's too. hilarious. It's hilarious, like that the the food memories that you get. Um, but that this was very big for me. So uh, when an opportunity came up to become a meat cutter and get like an entry level position at Mighty Quinn's, when it was getting quite popular, they just opened their their lo- first location in the East Village, and they got reviewed by the Times, and um, Pete Wells gave them two and a half stars, and you know, for a restaurant that had you know, serving food on paper plates. That was unheard of. So at the time, so needless to say, we were busy. And it was a really great introduction for me to, to, to learn, you know, real barbecue, you know, cooking on a real smoker with real wood, no, no electric or gas assist um, and learning it in a volume setting. So I, which I think is always the best place to learn. So I, I learned really quickly and, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. You were there when I met you. I, I think I'm, you know, I have a, like a box of business cards. I think I probably still have your card with Mighty Quinn's on it from when we met like way back in the day. Yes. Yeah. I think I definitely was because that was the first year that I went to the, uh, the Brooklyn ICC. Yeah. So, you know, the rest is history. I've been in barbecue now since then, almost primarily with the occasion of, with, with the exception of, uh, I worked at uh, Hudson Table, which is a culinary event space slash recreational cooking school in Hoboken as a, as a, as one of the chef instructors. And I did some chef's tables there. You did Mexican stuff there, didn't you? Or a lot of, like, I remember seeing really cool stuff you were working on. I definitely did a lot of Mexican stuff. I, I am so, so crazy about all things um, or all types of Mexican cuisine. Um, I spent a lot of time in Mexico and Oaxaca primarily, but over the years, and I am so overly fascinated by the culture, the food. Uh, I, I just love it there. And so for me, Hudson Table was a place to kind of be able to step outside of the barbecue zone and be able to be really creative and, and cook the food that I was really interested in cooking and and teach it too. So I was able to write classes and teach recipes and stuff food that i picked up along the way which was always a great experience i loved i love to teach and uh i love to spread you know the gospel of everything that i learn um i'm a very big big uh proponent of that so uh over the years that's what i something i've always done and always really gravitated towards now is that something you've been doing during covid have you gone to like online classes or is this something you're going to be doing yeah, so the idea is is right now I I really like to do more of that and actually funny that you mentioned that because we I'm working with uh, Hudson Table right now trying to put together a like a pitmaster slash barbecue masterclass which would be a virtual demonstration style masterclass where I could literally unload all my knowledge to anyone that would want to learn it uh, virtually which is difficult but. I think that the fundamentals and and the tricks and uh, you know some key many of the key aspects of it uh, can be taught. So even virtually, after spending this much time in it, so it's something we I want to try uh, to see if if we can sell some seats to that. That's something we're going to hopefully launch in the next week or two. Very intimate. We're going to be like six person classes. Seven and a half hours, eight hour classes. I'm not sure the length, but three sets of classes, two and a half hours each or so, and go really in depth, you know, from anatomy to, uh, you know, butchering to 
you know, wood selection, everything from that to brines, to rubs, uh, to how, how to use a grill as a smoker, how to use a Traeger properly, um, of which I have several in my backyard now. So if you're ever looking to get rid of one, I could use one. Okay, great. Uh, Traeger, if you're listening, we'll take two Traegers, please. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's kind of the gradual step right now because it's 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 the COVID time. So working in a restaurant isn't feasible uh, for me right now. Um, although even you know all the restaurants are, are are very limited capacity as it is, so there's not many open positions. But I'm not really looking for a position right now. I think the next step for me is to finally, you know put my foot forward and, and work on my own concept, which is something I plan on doing over the next couple of years and hopefully open it, uh, in this area, you know, the New Jersey, New York state area. And, uh, but that's the main focus with these side jobs of the barbecue and the barbecue virtual classes. And then, so does that mean it's going to be a barbecue place? Uh, well, there, there's going to be wood fired elements to it. I love barbecue. And uh, I'll never, ever fall out of love with it and cooking it. Um, but I think, I, I think what I've learned over the years is that the type of food that I prefer to cook is is the food that I grew up eating. But who's to say that I can't combine the two and create like a, a truly unique experience? Um, so that's that's kind of where I'm going with the concept that I want to open. So that, but that's I mean. I need a lot of money for that. So we'll see. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of money and the world to change a lot between. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I need vaccines, tons of vaccines, tons of money. Uh, and then we're good. So you did a lot of opening of places. Like I can't believe your job took you to Paris. How crazy was that going to Paris to open a barbecue restaurant? Yeah, that was absolutely insane. Funny story. I working at Mighty Quinn's, I met these two cool guys uh jean paul of course super french names and they were just touring around the u.s eating barbecue and they were just absolutely fascinated and enamored with all things barbecue and they said that they said the next time we talk we're going to be opening up a place in paris you should come and open it and i said wow that sounds really really cool um this was very early in my career so I, I didn't even have a clue how that would work. So fast forward a couple of years later, and they're actually in the process of getting this place open. The timing for me didn't work out for this first location because I was in between another contract and about to start at Surf. So I couldn't jump on to open their first location of Melt. It's called Melt, the barbecue place in Paris. Um, I did not name it, but uh, that's what they named it. <laughs> Sounds like a grilled cheese place. That's, yeah, or an ice cream sandwich shop. And I've told them that and uh, they still love the name and it flies there. People love it. The French, the French eat it up. So um, good for them. And uh, so the first place location they did, they opened didn't work out and they ended up bringing um, a pit guy from Texas who actually worked at Pecan Lodge, which is a very good place in Dallas. Uh, and so he got that first place started for them. And then the opportunity came for a second location to come and And so I had, uh, I told them I could come and consult and I could come out for a couple of months and help them open it. So they were like, yeah, we want you however we could have you. So, um, this is in 2018, end of 17, 18, I think. Yeah. They, uh, they brought me out in December and we, you know, in the matter of about a week and a half, we ended up getting the restaurant from like there was nothing in the restaurant, no tables, no chairs. We got to the point where we could feed. The restaurant was completed, um, and we could we fed 450 people. Uh, I had never used the smoker until the night before feeding 450 people. Um, so you know, we crossed our fingers. We packed our sleeping bags right next to it, and we uh, hoped for the best. And uh, Luckily, the, the product came out amazing on the first cook, which I can say is very rare. And uh, the event went off well. And, you know, they've been wildly successful since uh, since we opened that place. It was an incredible experience. I think the menu there is fantastic. 
Is there any barbecue culture in Paris? I mean, how many how many competitors do they have for barbecue out there? So when we opened, there were there was one or there was two other barbecue quote unquote concepts there um, that were fairly busy, not including the the original melt location, which was busy as well. So not much competition. Um, but it's you know France is a very meat centric culture. So they, they enjoy their their proteins, not in the quantities that Americans enjoy them. You, you know, they're not ordering a pound of brisket and a pound of ribs at a time, but they are coming often. So uh, it's it, it was successful. It is and it continues to be successful. Fortunately, right now they're in lockdown mode. So a lot of the restaurants are struggling there, but their government is helping them, unlike the government here, as is the case in most, you know, most countries, uh, like Canada, the government's helping out quite a bit as well. But all that to say that it, 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 and it was absolute incredible experience. You know, I was, I'm cooking barbecue one day in France on my way to work. I'm grabbing a, like a croissant and it's amazing. I'm way home, I grab baguettes to eat with my wife. We go to dinner at 9.30 p.m. and that's when kind of dinner starts there. And then on the weekend I drove, I took a, a train that goes 200 miles an hour to go see to go eat at Paul Bocuse for the night and then jump on the train back. You know, it's, that's uh, the life. I mean, that's, that's the dream, right? It's literally a surreal experience. And uh, I was very, very lucky and happy to have it. So um, I hope, I hope to be invited back for the next one. So do you like the process of consulting and opening places and doing that as opposed to just being like a line cook or an executive chef at a regular restaurant? I think what I've learned about myself over the years is that I do enjoy the push, you know, to get a, a place open, writing the recipes, recipe testing, getting them ready, training the staff from nothing, design aspects of the kitchen, figuring it out how it's going to flow and then opening and dealing with the clusterfuck of proportion of like massive proportions that, that comes with an opening, right? Uh, everything you know breaks down. Half the staff calls it sick. I think that's the that's something I've learned over the years is what really drives me or has driven me in the past. And then gradually bringing the restaurant to you know success, and then being able to train someone up and and put them in charge and to continue the success. I think it's not it's never something that I that I uh, specifically go for. Uh, if it's a, if it's an opportunity to consult and it's quick, like the one in Paris, I'll, I would, I would have done it. I, I probably would have stayed there a little bit longer, but, you know, talking about it out loud and now that you mention it, I think it is something that I, that I kind of gravitate towards because it's exciting, you know, from start to finish, uh, it's something I really enjoy. I also haven't really opened anything for myself. So I think that, I think that when it gets to, when I get to the point where I can open a restaurant, that's my own, you know, and I can put my name on it and I control, I can control the menu. I can control everything else in ways that I haven't been able to before. Um, I think that that's going to be the, the ultimate experience for me because that's something that I really haven't had yet. And it's something I look forward to one day having. So working for so many people, what are some of the best practices you've seen? Like you've been through a lot of kitchens. Do you see any, consistent things that you say, oh yeah, this is what the people at the top of their game are all doing. What, what are some of those things? You know, the one thing that I think is a responsibility of, of a chef and of people in our position is, is to operate the cleanest, most organized and safest environment, you know, in so many ways uh, that, that word can be taken, but I, I really mean it because you know, I've been fortunate enough to not have to work for people that don't, they don't encourage with positive reinforcement. It's kind of, a, you know, I, I don't really need to work for people that, that do that. I've been lucky enough that um, over the years, the jobs that I've taken, I haven't really come into contact with people that do that, but I can tell you, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't waste my time because that's not the kind of person I am, you know, and, and teaching and, and encouraging staff and, and people with that positive, you know, nurturing 
and you know excited and motive in that motivated excited way i think is the only way to do it and it's something that i've taken on because it's who i am i i'm i'm not a negative person i show up to work every day with a smile um i could tell you my cooks almost laugh at me at the fact that i've never gotten angry at them or yelled at them because it's something that's kind of rare still in this industry it's changing i know a lot of people coming up that you know are are doing it i think the right way um but i think that if there's anything that it's it's something that i've taken to heart because it's something it's, it's so important and i think it positive environments and comfortable environments for staff, you know, um, equate to good, great food. It's really as simple as that and ways of life. It's, it's such a hard industry and people work so, so many hours and they don't really have anything else but their job when they're line cooks or grill cooks or, you know, uh, dish or prep cooks, a lot of them. So, I think that's something that I want to strive for when I do open my own place is that, that, that balance of work and work and home life. It's so important. Yeah. You see these people way more than your own family. I mean, looking yeah. back at the last job I was at and all the jobs where I wasn't self-employed, like you're with these people night and day and you know more about them than you know like than anyone else in the world so like why would you not want it to be a positive environment but i do think not justifying it all but i think it's different when you're the owner and it's your money right like it's a little easier if you're just the executive chef getting a paycheck to kind of walk away as opposed to like this is my full reputation on the line this is my life savings like i can see how you can go down that road but that's not how I want to run my kitchen either. You know, yeah. it's an, it's a reason I don't want to have my own place. Like being, feeling like I'm tied to that all the time that I can't disconnect at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's a reality. And that's something that my wife voices her, her worries about as well. Uh, is that once we do get our own or I do get my own kitchen, will I be able to walk away from it? And will I be able to sleep at night knowing that I'm not there all the time? Um, but I think it goes back to, you know, how you are and how, how you manage and how you lead. There's so much to be said about that. And I think that if you put yourself in the right position, um, and treat people the way that you want to be treated, I think that it's going to be difficult. I mean, every, every job is difficult. Um, train your people and put them in place to succeed. And, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, that's, that's the goal, right? And I think it's, I think it's completely doable. You know, why, why have people work more than five days a week? You know, why, why are we pushing people to have, you know, 60, 70 hour weeks? Why aren't we just hiring more people? Um, you know, every other country tends to have a better work life or starting towards a better work life balance. And, you know, when I, when I attended the MAD conference in 2000 and 17 i was talking to ben shuri from of attica and he he has at the time he had not a single staff member working more than four days a week and not a single staff member working more than 48 hours a week so they were on at a max 12 hours a day four days a week three days off consecutive and if cooks didn't if cooks felt like they needed to come in to, to get prep done for their station he would send them home um very strict and he found a balance there uh it seemed to be working really well for him i saw him 2019 he was at the philly chef conference he came and he was on a panel with matt orlando and i think katie button and they were talking about like kitchen environment and i just remember hearing that thinking wow could we all adopt that here in the u.s yeah yeah it's it's crazy and why not i think that the problem is, is that it's just you have to kind of rework the system of your restaurant and how it, how your P&L works, right? Well, and so it's not like, just the restaurant business. It's the whole like workaholic culture of us here in the States because yeah. it seems like every industry, if you're at the, you know, top of your game, all the, all the places are really successful. They all seem to operate the same way. Like nobody's ever off. Everybody's always, you know, emailing work things on their downtime and they just can't disconnect. We're not one of those countries that has four weeks of paid vacation. It just isn't something we're used to. Yeah. You're right. And 
so there's a big it's, it's going to be a challenge but it's something that i that i that i've written into my business plan you know uh for my for my restaurant is that staff will be on five days on two days off con- consecutive always they'll be paid very fairly i'll take a hit in the in the profit end i'm not in it to to make money i want to live I want my wife and I to have a good life. I'm not in it to be rich. I don't want to open seven restaurants. I don't want to franchise. I want to open one great restaurant and I want to work there till I can't work anymore. And I want the people that come through my restaurant and I say come through my restaurant because I don't expect my chefs to stay. I expect them to work for a little while, learn as much as they can and leave. And then I want to support them in their next venture. Um, just like I would expect from, and I've usually had from all the people that have, that have employed me. So I've been lucky in that aspect. So that's what, that's what I want. And I don't, I don't think it's impossible to attain. I just think that, you know, as a business owner, you have to take a step back and, and take care of the people that take care of you. So. So looking back on your career, would you have done it differently in any different order? Do you feel like you should have, gotten an education in a different area or did you miss any opportunities or are you kind of happy with how everything worked out? It's a really good question. <laughs> um, I, I can't say that I can't say I, I could have done it any differently or would have done it ever differently because I'm happy of how everything turned out and uh, I'm really happy with the relationships, relationships I've made. I'm happy with the people I've worked for. Uh, the happy with the people I've met that worked for me along the way um, and the experiences. So I guess advice for people out there looking to get into similar work, any suggestions on maybe how to approach it and, and get in there to get in the industry? It's a good question too. <laughs> um, I think that a lot of people try hard and put a lot of pressure on themselves to figure out what food they want to do. And some people just take, and I, I, I think it's normal to take a very long time to decide what it is that you want to cook and to find, figure out what it is that, that pushes you and to become better. You know, um, I think that cooking is not cooking professionally is not for everybody. It's thankless. Uh, it's difficult work, but it's extraordinarily rewarding if you find if you like where you're working. And I think that w- with as many restaurants that you have these days, I think finding a place where you like to work is not going to be too difficult. And if you don't like where you're working, leave uh, because you're not doing anybody good, any good, if you're if you don't like your station or the people you work with. There's plenty of restaurants out there. So, uh, you know, my best advice would be to just keep, keep moving until, until you find a place that you like where the people treat you well. I think that's so, uh, one of the great things about the internet and social media, especially is you get like a behind the scenes look at how places are operating. Like when I think about starting out in the food industry, when I was like a teenager and even right out of college, we, you know, barely even had the internet, but now it's like, you can go to their Instagram pages. You can not only see their dishes, but behind the scenes, like what are people saying about them? How are they interacting with customers? Every place is getting reviewed these days. You can really kind of get the picture of a place before you even step in the door. You kind of know the reputation of the chef. You kind of can get a vibe on whether the cooks like it there or not. I think it's really interesting as opposed to going into someplace completely blind. Yeah, I completely agree. That's a really good point. And um, it is a very different situation and it has become pretty hilarious over the last several years um, how interactive restaurants are with the public over over social media, you know? Sometimes to their sometimes to their detriment. Sometimes, sometimes, it is free promotion. So um, there's a lot to be said for that in, in an industry where every penny counts, right? Yeah, for sure. So, what are some of your favorite culinary tools and resources, or business tools and resources? I always like to ask people, like, what are you into? What are books, websites, video tutorials, anything? Um, I mean. 
hands down the number one uh, drive and motivator for me in my early career and continues to be is ideas and food blog is the ideas and food blog, which I know you're familiar with. I made two Alex of their, and- I made two of their recipes this past week. I made their dulce de leche <laughs> pumpkin pie and I made their chocolate loaf cake. So I'm always, and that loaf cake, I went back and looked, it was from 2005 <laughs> for people who just consistently blog, like they were blogging 15 years ago. That's like unheard of. Yeah. And they were, they were the, the pioneers and they were the ones literally posting all of their ideas in food. I mean, you couldn't have had a better name for the blog. And not only they're incredibly nice people, I've gotten to know Alex a little bit over the years, um, who, by the way, also makes literally the best donuts on the planet. No comparison. They opened a shop 45 minutes from my house now. So we have one down in Virginia. I'm glad I don't have to schlep up to like, uh, Pennsylvania anymore to get them. So I don't get down there as often as I want, but uh, yeah, I've been in there. And, and Alex is occasionally in there. He was in there the past two times I was in. Yes. And he, l- lucky you, he's about an hour and 15 from me. And that's just enough for me to be like, oh, I don't know if I, and he sells out. Like there's no donuts after 9 a.m. So, you know, get there early or don't get there at all. And good for him for that. You know, he doesn't carry anything over. It's all sold. I don't know if you even know this. The name Chefs Without Restaurants comes from a dinner he was at that he was a part of. Did you know this? Have you ever even heard of I had of this? no idea. No. Yeah. So, Tell me about it. Well, I mean, so they they inspired a lot of both my personal chef business. You know, the whole idea that you could be a chef, you could do really creative things. Like they don't have a restaurant. They've worked in restaurants, but it's been like 20 years since they've worked in restaurants. And the idea of like pop-up dinners and consulting and doing these collaborative things. But a few years ago, they decided they wanted to do this collab dinner with all these people who were in between gigs. So it was John and Karen Shields. They had closed townhouse. They were, wow. look, they were looking to open a place. They weren't quite there yet. So they came up and they had Johnny Sparrow with them because he w- had been working with them. Uh, Alex was there. And then they had Curtis Duffy because he hadn't opened Grace yet. So, okay. you know, these were all people who were like, they were just itching to get back in the kitchen and do a thing. And they did it at Elements in Princeton, New Jersey. Oh, wow. Um, so they just- That must have been a good dinner. It was a, an amazing <laughs> dinner. And I don't know, I think Doc Scons coined the term Chefs Without Restaurants. So he did two blog posts and they're still on his website. And it said like Chefs Without Restaurants, the prelude. And it was like photos of cocktail hour and all this stuff there. And then it was Chefs Without Restaurants, the dinner. So it was never this like official thing. And I loved the name and I thought it was so cool. And it just kind of encapsulated what I love that all these chefs didn't have to necessarily have a restaurant. And I love the idea of like chefs coming together, doing a collaborative thing. And I held on to it. And I just sat on that name for years and like seven years went by and like, it wasn't a website. It wasn't an anything. I'm like, well, fuck it. I'm going to take this. And I just like built the websites, chef was chefs without restaurants.com and.org. And I'm like, yeah, why not? And it started as like a joke thing. And now we have thousands of members across all platforms. And I actually registered the trademark. So I, Amazing. Good. I, le- I legally own the name and everyone's, <laughs> and everyone's been really supportive. Like I post that about it on, on social media. And I think it got reposted by like, John Shields and um, John and and Alex and all of them. So super supportive that I just kind of like swiped the name. So yeah, That's great. I, I mean, ideas, it's a fantastic name. Yeah. Ideas and food. I mean, just totally amazing. And this might sound crazy. I have, I haven't done it. I haven't stayed up to date in like a year, but I literally printed out every single recipe from their website. Like I stayed on top of it for a while. Yeah. So I have like five volumes of like three ring binders of every recipe. That's got to be worth something. Not the ideas, but just if it was a literal recipe, I printed it out and have it. So like if their website ever crashed, uh, I've got that all backed up. You can fix it. Um, I wonder if Alex even has that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't even know if he he knows that I have that, but I printed that out <laughs> and kept that. So it's like cuz it's like a cookbook, right? I mean, it's the best cookbook For and just sure. going back to all those ideas. For they, sure. They do some crazy crazy stuff. Oh, it's incredibly inspiring and it's something that got me completely into cooking and I into the geek side of it too and you know, I've always I've always I'm always trying new things, you know, I'm always messing around. That's I think it's something is so important as a chef is just to not stop, you know, just to keep, keep trying things, keep pushing, keep trying to bake, trying to, you know, things that 
put you outside of your comfort zone. Um, but as crazy as, as crazy as their ideas are, they have a lot of really easy, basic recipes. One of my oh, favorites sure. that I do all the time for maximum flavor is their salmon. And it's a maple, smoked maple miso salmon. And it literally is just white miso paste, maple syrup, sherry vinegar, smoked paprika, and cayenne. And you just make it as a marinade and throw your salmon in there and let it sit for like three hours. And then you broil it for 10 minutes and then shut off the heat and let it carry over cook in the oven. And it's amazing. amazing. And I serve and that. Easy. I serve it to customers all the time. People love it. I can just throw <laughs> awesome. it in a marinade in a Ziploc bag before I go, and then head on over to their house, and it's ready to roll. Um, Amazing. And things like brining seafood, I again tell people all the time. They do a five percent saline brine for seafood for ten minutes. I do it yeah. every time. I do scal- You know, it prevents the albumin from coming out of salmon. It makes your scallops a little firmer. It'll pull out any you know sand or grit. But just like take your seafood and throw it in a five percent solution for ten minutes. And that's yep. something I picked up, you know, like eight years ago from their website. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely awesome. Uh, I mean, that's hands down, I would say, one of the, the best resources for me. Uh, and has been over the years. I mean, the rest is just cookbooks and um, and stuff like that. And I, I just like to tinker a lot. So, um, you know, any idea I have, I write it down. And I just try to make it. Also, Rich uh rich uh shia um and uh jeremy yeah jeremy mansky uh the the koji cookbook's fantastic too i'm trying to get those Uh, guys on the show they've become so popular like i i keep reaching out to them because i took a workshop with rich like four years ago so rich and i go back to early twitter like before he even got in the Koji, like he and I were big cooking issues fans. And uh, okay. like we used to talk almost daily uh, via Twitter. And so I was there from the beginning. Actually, he was the first guest post on my Perfect Little Bites website. Like I okay. never wanted to have anyone guest blog, but he was starting to do the Koji stuff. And he made like a Parmesan cheese type thing out of Koji. I remember that and, recipe. Uh, and he wanted, and I was like, can you, so he exclusively put it on my website. And it's so weird. People don't read. So people almost weekly email me and say, can you talk to me about this recipe? I'm like, did you read? It's a, it's a guest post. Like I don't, I am not the Koji Jedi you are looking for. Like Rich will talk to you via the internet. He's got a book, but I left yep. it on there and I, I get more hits on that one post on my website than almost anything I've done in a decade. Um, I can imagine. Yeah. So I was, I I was there when he started all that. And then I did at star chefs, Jeremy did a workshop probably three years ago and star chefs hired me to write a bunch of editorials. So that was one of the ones I got to do a wrap up about. So actually one of my chefs without restaurants podcast episodes is just the audio from that. Like I pulled out a mic and just recorded the workshop and one day I reached out to him this past year and was like, do you care if I like tidy up the audio and release it? And he's like, sure. And again, it's like my second most listened to, maybe my first most listened to podcast episode. So people are crazy, wow. people are crazy for the Koji and Miso stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the, the thing right now. And there's very little uh, literature on it, uh, at least on this side of the world. Um, there has been, you know, and obviously the Noma fermentation book has a little bit on it, uh, has a good amount on it. Um, but other than that, there's not much on it. So it's, and it's, it's a very cool ingredient, uh, fun to play with. That's for sure. So I know it's probably like picking a favorite kid, but do you have a preference or a favorite barbecue, like either a cut of meat or a style of preparation? I mean, brisket's always been, you know, brisket's the hardest to cook perfectly. It's two muscles that are completely different. Um, they cook differently based on when the cows came to slaughter, based on when they were feeding. You know, all times of year they cook differently. All humidities they cook differently. Uh, it's the most temperamental uh, muscle that barbecue cooks can cook. And I think it's by far the most difficult to cook very well that's why i like it yeah you can fake always, a, you can fake a pork shoulder i've always said like i can even sure. slow roast a pork shoulder in my oven yeah. with a good yeah. rub on it and then shred it and do some sauce and like you wouldn't know yeah. so i pick yeah. my barbecue places by the quality of their brisket for sure as you should and uh it's very it's like cho- choosing a pizza place by their plain pizza i think that's what i do anyways <laughs> all i want to taste is the very the Margarita. Show me a margarita. If it's good, I'll move on. 
Yeah, my, for, my former co-host of this podcast has a pizza food truck and we've talked about that a lot. And when we've traveled together, uh, we've that's his thing. So I've eaten some pizza with him and he always goes in <laughs> and he'll get like one of the really interesting funky ones, but we have to get like a plain cheese just to kind of baseline judge. Yeah, that and French fries is one of the things. I If I go to a restaurant and there's fries in the menu, I'm ordering them, period. Doesn't matter where, doesn't matter how. I have to try them. I have to try the fries. I just made some French fries uh, like right before this podcast. So I don't know if you had seen my thing about the French fry competition. Um, McCain did this. They have their sure crisp waffle fries. And they okay. said like, we'll send you free fries for this recipe contest. So I entered, they sent me to my home, a 27 pound case of French fries. <laughs> frozen? Frozen. Frozen <laughs> waffle fries. They came on dry ice. Um, so they wanted to see recipes. So I tinkered with a bunch of things, but what I came up with is I did a smoked cheddar Old Bay queso with scrapple, pickled jalapenos, maple syrup, and ketchup. Oh boy. I did it. I did it. <laughs> so like, sure. so like an hour and a half ago, like right before the show, I did my photo shoot. Like I broke everything out and did it and did the, <laughs> the official entry. So you just have to post it on Instagram and tag them. And it's only open to 50 people. So I have a one in 50. Do you get shot. a lifetime supply of McCain waffle you, chips? You, you get 20 cases of fries. <laughs> so I'm going to have to find a friend with some freezer space. Maybe my church here in town who has a commercial kitchen. So you win like a thousand, case. You win like a thousand dollars in uh, chef swag. I think chef's role sponsors it or co-sponsors oh, that's it. That's cool. But you also get like 20 cases. So if I win 20 cases of fries, I don't know, like maybe I'll do like a fry pop-up. Like my church has a commercial exactly. kitchen. We'll do like a fry <laughs> pop-up and, and do something like that and do it for fundraiser. Yeah. So I just was tinkering with fries. I, I, I'm, a big, awesome. I'm a big French fry guy i am too as i know how hard it is to make good fries it's, it's like it's taken a lot of my, my time in, in my life <laughs> standing in front of a fryer to achieve the perfect french fry and i'm still on trying to find it so <laughs> yeah. um but i love fries so any words of wisdom or parting words as we get out of here today just just be nice you know uh we have an opportunity as chefs in this industry and as leaders is to, to be, to, to bring, you know, to bring the industry into the new, into, into this millennium, like into a different, I don't know, into a more positive frame of mind, be nice to everybody, you know, lead in a positive way. Um, you're going to get more out of everybody. You're going to have a better work environment. Um, and you're going to have a better way of life. Just be happy. That's all. Yeah, definitely words to live by, especially in 2020. Life has been hard yeah. enough with everything else going on. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a rough one. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate having you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Chris. It was great to see you too. Yeah, definitely. Let's not wait three years before we talk again. I know. Well, hopefully next year, Star Chefs will be back on and, and we can all get up there. Um, yeah. I look, for, I look yeah. forward to traveling, so I'll be up that way as soon as I can. Good, man. Well, let me know when you do come. I will. Well, thanks for all of our listeners. This has been the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.